Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for the chance to be together, for Christian fellowship, for the word of God that you've given to us so we might grow and learn what you've done, what you've said, and what your will for us is. Help us learn from uh, Acts today as we study and, and share with one another. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, last time, which was a few weeks ago, I covered Jesus's taking the scroll and uh, showing how Scripture was fulfilled. And we were back in Luke in the synagogue in Nazareth where Jesus himself walks into the synagogue and reads from the scroll that was prophecy about him and said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And by the end of the episode in, in Nazareth, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And I was pointing out that there's pre previews and reviews in Acts, and what happened to Jesus prefigures what's going to happen to the apostles. There'll be some good reception at first in some places, and, and a few people will believe, but then there'll be a negative reaction and rejection. So that was last week. And um, so let's go to verse 4 now of Acts 17 now in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. It says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Acts 17.4. So the gospel was preached as was common. Paul would start at the synagogue. Some of the Jews were persuaded that what Paul was preaching was true. As I think I mentioned, Luke's technique is to earlier in Acts give a long version of Paul speaking he did that in other cases, too, like with Peter and with Stephen and so on. So we know what was typical. So if you want to know what Paul typically preached, you go back to Acts 13. There's a really long version. What scriptures he quoted, what arguments he made, and so on. Later in Acts, you have another synagogue scene. All those details aren't filled in. There's limited space on a scroll, you know. And so, go back to Acts 13 if you want to fill in more details. But here we are finding interesting information about the response that happens in Thessalonica. Some were persuaded. The word in the Greek for persuaded is patho, and that word is found 21 times in Luke Acts. There are a lot of words as I'm getting better at being able to search the Greek words and using my logo software. Luke had a very well-developed vocabulary in Greek, more so than most other New Testament writers other than perhaps the author of Hebrews. So Luke was very well uh, versed in Greek. We don't know totally about Luke's background, but... He, we know he's a physician. 
he's well-educated. And so a lot of times there's words often used in Luke Acts that are more rare in the rest of the New Testament. Persuaded here uh, was happened as Paul was reasoning and giving evidence. We saw that in verse 3. So we know that he used reason and evidence. The gospel is not based on emotional responses, romantic ideals, what feels good. It's not based on doing surveys about what people want to hear. It's based on the truth. And the truth is affirmed using sound reason and evidence for the fact of the truth. The Bible gives evidence for the veracity of the gospel because what God did was done in history before witnesses. And the most profound event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we've said in other times and places, there were people on the scene who had uh, means, motive, and opportunity to refute the claims of the gospel by producing the body, the dead body of Jesus, but there was no body. Everyone agreed, whether it's Jesus, the disciples, the guards, the Romans, the Jewish leadership, everybody involved all agreed that the tomb was empty. We know some people from Matthew, some people took money to lie, say the disciples stole it, but they did not. Uh, because they met the resurrected Christ and he taught some of them in Luke chapter 24. So we have reasoning and evidence. And so this persuaded here is laying out the truth and um, it said they joined Paul and Silas. Now there's an interesting word that when we really dig into it, tells an even bigger story that affirms other themes in Luke Acts. So he persuaded them, giving evidence, and then it says, and they joined. Join is a word that's only used one time in the entire New Testament, and that's right here. And it's pros klerao, but klerao is a word that I talked about when I was pre I've been preaching through Ephesians, and it means to assign by lot. And you find that in the Bible. For example, in the Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 um, teaching in Moses, in the Septuagint, you have the statement that Israel is God's lot. Israel is God's portion. The nations, the goyim, are put under the sons of God, which we've talked about. It's divine counsel. Later here in Acts 17, Paul will talk about God drawing out the boundaries of the nations. But Israel was God's portion. And here, of course, Israel did rebel. There's yet a future for Israel. 
But Jerusalem was ransacked in 70 and then 135 A.D., and there was no restored national Israel until 1948. But this idea of being part of God's lot, here this pros um, is, uh, prefix is added, which actually is usually it strengthens the term. Okay? So what this actually means is that they joined, but the Greek here would indicate that they were put there by God because it's an aorist passive. Aorist means at a point of time. Passive means that something happens to you. So they didn't assign themselves. They were assigned by God to the church, the believers. They become part of God's lot. This is the same thing taught in Ephesians 1. And I covered that back, that was three years ago, by the way. I have the last sermon on Ephesians written. And I will present it when we get back in town. We're going to be gone for starting Tuesday for about eight or nine days. But when I get back, I'll preach the last sermon on Ephesians. It took about three years preaching twice a month to get through Ephesians. So I'm thankful for that because I remember I used to be so sick. I wondered if I'd be able to even finish my ministry. And wow, Ephesians is preached. Can you imagine that? So I thank God for that. Thank you for your prayers. But in Ephesians, we saw that believers were assigned as part of God's lot from before the foundation of the world in his eternal counsel. Now here on the scene of history, strong evidence is presented and then they were joined or assigned by lot with the with the believers. So they joined Paul and Silas and by implication the the church that God is building, along with a large number of God fearing Greeks, which would be God fearers that were commonly addressed in Acts. We saw that the first Gentiles to come into the church were ones who were God-fearing Gentiles who went to the synagogue but had not been circumcised. Yes. It sounds like the lot in the way that you're using it is uh, like election. And what about when the Bible refers to lots in a different way, like they cast lots? Well, that's a similar, it's a similar idea. Okay, the same word is used when the lot fell to Messiah. And um, assigned by lot would mean, let's say there's a family and there's land and there's an inheritance. So it would be divided by lot. This is your portion. This is your lot. Okay? And that you see throughout the Old Testament. Now, God had assigned a special lot or portion to Israel, which was uh, the Canaan, the land of promise. And he took them out of Egypt and brought them to himself and gave them the promise of the portion 
that he assigned to them. But we know from the entire Bible that the portion that was assigned to Israel, they've never had ever in their history. The ideal boundary, ideal boundaries have never happened. Those of us who take the Bible literally, including prophecy, believe that will happen during the millennium. They will have the assigned lot that God gave them. But it's going to be a lot of sorrow in the meantime. They're going to have to come to Messiah. They'll have to look upon him whom they pierced and mourn after him. And all of the things that will happen that, we, that Eric's been teaching on. But here, the church also is, is similar uh, terminology is used for the church. Now, let me get something right here. We don't want to go to any extreme. We just want to understand the whole counsel of God. Some replacement theologians say, aha, see, the church is God's lot, so they replace Israel. And God's all done with Israel forever. The church is the new Israel. But they don't read the whole Bible. They skip Romans 11. They take they, they allegorize the book of Revelation. They allegorize Daniel. They don't take the whole counsel of God seriously because they arrogate to themselves more than God's assigned them. But on the other hand, there are hyper-dispensationalists, or some people that we'd, we'd consider ordinary dispensationalists, who basically say the church is just a parenthesis and not that important. Just a temporary waylay toward the real thing God wants to do. That's, some people actually have said that. I, think, I don't think it's a primary view of most people. But that's wrong, too. I'm convinced after three years of preaching through Ephesians, that the church is God's intention just as ultimately Israel is. It's not either or. It's not either. You don't have to reject the church to affirm God's future plan for Israel. And vice versa. Both things are true. So right now, this is a mystery that we wouldn't even know had God not revealed it. We saw that in Ephesians. This is a mystery. But it's known because God's revealed it. That now God is saving Jews and Gentiles and making them into one new man and building upon the foundation of Christ the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets, completion of the foundation, the building stones, of this church. It will have Jews and Gentiles and bring honor and glory to God. That's God's lot. But, as Paul said, don't become arrogant. Don't boast against the natural branches. God has got a, he had a future plan to save Israel. And they and Israel will dwell in the land and will have those ideal borders that will happen during the millennium. Eric and I are firmly convinced that all that God said about this is important. Does that make sense? So it's not either or. So who was here, joined the Lord, became part of his lot? Jews who believed, God-fearing Greeks, prominent women, Gentiles, 
whoever believes. So this assignment by Lot, given the passive, and Luke continually uses what's called a divine passive. Uh, and Dr. Schnabel, for example, says, were assigned to by God. That's how he would translate this. They were assigned to the church by God. Now, how do we know that? Because they believed and they joined the apostles to listen to the gospel. So, that's what that says. And notice it says, God fearing Greeks, again, a theme earlier in Acts, and leading women, another theme in Luke Acts. God saves unexpected people. God saves people despised by everybody else. God saves sinners, lepers, immoral persons, tax gatherers, the despised, the rejected, the things that are not, in order that he might shame the things that are. And Luke, in particular, makes this thematic. And notice that uh, if you look at the genealogy in Luke, it includes totally unexpected people, immoral sinners. But they're part of God's plan. So um, let's look at, let me see here what I have written. I'll have to have somebody look this up. Look up um, Luke 16.31. Luke 16.31. Let's talk about that in the context. Somebody gets that, raise your hand and I'll have Brian bring you the mic. Luke sixteen thirty one, But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Isn't that interesting? It's using that word persuaded. So the idea was, if you do the right sign, then everybody's going to believe. Somebody was raised from the dead. They weren't persuaded because of hardness of heart. Here's what we learned from that, dear saints. The evidence is on our side. The evidence for things taught in the Bible verifies what we believe. Not because we believe it, because it's true. And God has convicted us we need to believe the truth. How about the creation of the entire universe out of nothing? Is there any evidence for that? Well, yes, because the, the universe is finite. However big it is, and however old it is, it's finite. And had the universe, because of what we know about second law of thermodynamics and the loss of energy in a closed system, the universe can't be a closed system because it would have burned out and died of heat death by now. So the universe is a finite amount of time old. So here's evidence, here's a fact. Either something eternal exists, 
or something not eternal came forth out of nothing. I debated with my very, very brilliant, well, a grandson who's in the college degree. I tell him that he can't refute that. He's not a believer yet. I haven't given up on him. But we debate, and he knows that's true. Either something eternal exists, or something not eternal came out, came forth out of nothing. What logic would say something springs forth out of nothing spontaneously? Nobody would believe that about anything. Every effect has a cause. The universe isn't a cause, it's effect. What's the cause? God, the God of the Bible, who created all things out of nothing. So the evidence points to that. So you would think, well, the evidence is so strong, everybody will believe it. Do they? No. I've seen debates with some brilliant philosophers and scientists uh, in the 80s. There were some of them published. John Angerberg was putting some of those on VHS tape. Well, these guys would do all the reason and logic and study and finally have to admit there must be some kind of God. That has to be true because they agree. The universe can't come forth out of nothing and it is finite and it would be dead by now. If if it was eternally old, so then the guy says, "All right, I'll admit that, but it may be some god other than the one you're talking about." <laughs> well, he didn't want to. He had moral. He don't want to serve God. He admitted that was true, but he didn't want to do anything about it. So, if you notice here, they were persuaded, but it was by God. It's a divine passive. The evidence pointed to it. But it's God that softens the heart so that the hardened sinner will believe. The evidence was just as real to Paul before his conversion as after. But God changed Saul of Tarsus into who we call Paul. So, if if they won't listen to the scripture, why wouldn't they listen to Moses and the prophets? Because they have hard hearts. We saw last time I taught Sunday school, Jesus went into his own synagogue where he went as a boy, preached from Isaiah 61, and at the end they wanted to throw him off a cliff. They weren't persuaded. It wasn't because Moses and the prophet didn't tell the truth. They didn't want to hear it. They plugged their ears. They put their hands over and go screaming. I can't hear you. I won't listen to you. That's hardness of heart. It, those assigned by God to the church believed. We don't know who those are, so we preach to everybody. So, uh, they, no, here's another instant. I'll read this one. Luke 18, 9, it uses the word persuaded. It says here in Luke 18, 9, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous if you know this with contempt. Here's the, the word uh, here. Uh, patho is used there also, like it is here. That word patho. Literally in Greek, it said, they persuaded themselves. Have you noticed how easy it is for people to persuade themselves they're righteous? Oh, yes. 
Have you watched the news? There isn't anything wicked enough or evil enough or perverted enough that somebody hasn't persuaded themselves that they're righteous in doing it and teaching it. Oh, I'm righteous. I'm standing up for what's good. Well, for example, uh, male and female aren't valid categories anymore. And if you think that they are, there's something wrong with you. And we would say follow the Bible and follow the science. They both tell you male and female. Well, we don't like Bible or the science. We persuaded ourselves that gender is a state of consciousness. Have you noticed that? Well, here, it's just an illustration. We got to be careful that God persuades us. Because we might persuade ourselves that we're righteous when in fact we're not. So we, we need to submit to the truth of God revealed in the Bible. So the irony is they persuade themselves they were righteous. God's purpose is to persuade sinners they are unrighteous. <laughs> That's why we preach the law and the gospel. God's purpose is to persuade sinners that they're unrighteous. That is to convict them of their sins. And so they're busy working to persuade themselves that they're righteous. And the Holy Spirit is convicting no, you're unrighteous. I think Saul slash Paul is prime example. He said that, that he's an example that God saves sinners. Because he had persuaded himself he was righteous when he was raging against believers and wanting them dead. He was applauding the martyrdom of Stephen on a mission from hell to destroy the church. And then he ran straight into Christ, who appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? It was God that persuaded Saul that he was unrighteous. Saul persuaded himself that he was righteous. See the difference? So when God persuades us, then we see our need for the blood atonement, for the forgiveness of sins, for repentance. Then this angry Saul softened and said, what will you have me do? What must I do? And God sent Ananias to, to talk to him. So he received his sight back, which he lost, and so on. So that's in the background here. Now, this is going to be what he does. Acts 18 forces. He was reasoning in the synagogues every Sabbath, Acts 18.4, and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. We need to affirm the value of apologetics. The truth needs to be taught clearly, reasonably, from the scripture, giving evidence, including objective evidence that we see in the creation, and we should never give up trying to persuade people that they need Christ in the gospel. It can get very frustrating, 
And uh, the wrath of man doesn't really help us. We can get very angry. There's a lot to get angry about right now. But we don't want to lose the fruit of the Spirit because we're so angry at the world. Because we're, we're, we're set out in the midst of wolves and sinners. And who, who knows which person is the next Saul of Tarsus. So keep trying to persuade. I, I learned that back in the 80s. Yeah, I'm going to start really studying apologetics. We need to give evidence. And, and some people, the, the neo-Orthodox or the emergent or whatever, they, they don't believe much of anything other than spiritual evolution. It's a waste of time giving evidence. People don't make their religious decisions based on the evidence anyhow. So you need to speak to their felt needs. Do you feel lonely? Come to church. There's people here. You'll find friends. Well, people find friends a lot of places like the bar, the sports venue, the gym. The church isn't just another place where you might not be lonely. The church is, should be the place where you find forgiveness of sins and repentance and the gospel. So don't give up giving evidence because you think, well, postmodern people don't believe in evidence anyhow. No, they believe in whatever's convenient. It's so ironic. It's so ironic. And you hear liberals saying, follow the science. I mean, what, what, what world do I live in? All these years, the liberals are saying, oh, science can't tell us anything. Reality is a state of mind. Evidence is meaningless. Don't worry about that. If you feel a certain way, that's your reality. You have your truth. You have your truth. Everybody gets their truth. Science has been overturned. Every means of knowing something's true. Verification, falsification. Uh, uh, all of the means that we would have to know something's true. It's all invalid because reality is state of mind. I heard that for decades and fought against it. And now they're saying, oh, follow the science. Okay, good. We're glad you came around. Male and female. DNA. Oh, no, we don't want to follow science. Do you see, dear saints, it's a moral problem? It's not an intellectual problem. But here's the thing that I want you to get from this. Don't let any of what the world is saying or doing, whether they're all going into postmodern mysticism or they're following science falsely so-called and not wanting to hear the facts, Keep on the same track. Give evidence, persuade, tell the truth, explain the gospel, preach the word of God, call sinners repentance, and keep it up. Paul did that, and that's one of the themes in Luke X. He keeps doing the same thing, no matter what kind of reaction he gets. And I've seen Christian theologians go way off base. For example, Paul goes into Athens and he debates philosophers on Mars Hill and then it says later there were a few that believed him but mostly they mocked him. So I've heard people literally say, see, Paul learned his lesson so he quit trying to do that. That is a terrible reading of Luke Acts. Jesus didn't preach, quit preaching the fact that he was fulfilling scripture after he was rejected in Luke chapter 4 by his own people. The, the message is the same. He didn't change anything. 
But some people say, well, you just got to have a blind leap of faith. Forget about evidence. That's not what it's saying. Paul kept giving evidence everywhere he went. I don't know how people read so poorly. I think part of it is just taking little things and taking them out of context. Just read all the way through Luke and Acts as one, two-volume work, and see what Luke is saying. So this giving of evidence continues. In Acts 18, he was still reasoning, and that was after Acts 17, where he's rejected at Mars Hill. He didn't change a thing. I'm saying this to save some some young preacher uh, who may happen to hear this on the internet or whatever, or hears it here in person. Don't don't believe these things. They're lying to you. It doesn't matter whether people love evidence or hate evidence. Preach it because it honors God. Here's a, here's what to think of. If we persuade and give evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead, that He's the Son of God, that He's the Creator of the universe. That, that all the things the Bible says about him are true, and that he's coming again, and there's a future judgment, God will be glorified even by those who rejected the evidence. Because on the day of judgment, they'll have to admit that they heard it, and they should have listened to it, and they refused to do it. God will be glorified by those who believe and willingly glorify him, by those who have to face the fact that they plugged their ears and should have listened to it. Does that make sense? But God isn't glorified if you say, come to church so you won't be lonely, and that's all you got. What are they going to say on the day of judgment when you never told them the gospel? Well, at least I wasn't lonely. Well, what good is that going to do when the stakes are heaven and hell? They even sing songs. I mean, really, they mock God. There's an old country western song about that. There's rock songs about the going to hell is not so bad because that's where my friends are going to be. So they're not worried about being lonely. But I believe. But one preacher said, "Yeah, but they won't be having any fun. It's not good." All right, persuaded. Now they joined. And then there were Jews, God-fearing Greeks, and prominent women at the founding of the church. This again is telling us that God is glorified by saving persons from all walks of life, all races, genders. There's only two, male and female. Um, Jew, Greek, wherever they may be, and that this would be part of the church that was assigned as God's lot, and they'll bring glory and honor to God. Now let me quote Dr. Schnabel, his excellent commentary on Acts. The second verb, associated with, that's our pros clerao, describes the emergence of a community of believers in Jesus, taught initially by Paul and Silas. The people who became believers in Jesus joined the two missionaries. The verb could also be translated as were assigned to, 
were assigned to, as I've been saying, which underscores more explicitly, says Schnabel, God's initiative indicated again in the passive voice of the verb, not only in the conversion of the new believers, but in the foundation of the community. So God is calling out people and assigning them to this new group. We know from Ephesians, the one new man. Now, Paul mentions this in 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, when he later wrote to the church that developed there in Thessalonica. I'll quote that to you. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report, verse 9, about us, what kind of reception we had with you, and how, notice, you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. Wow. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, both of the things are true. What's said in Acts, what's said in Thessalonians. We've got to accept it. I can't tell you how many people have become angry with me over the decades if I say anything about the doctrine of election. Because they want it removed from the Bible. Oh, they don't say that. They basically say God elects those who elect themselves. Otherwise, it's not fair. Well, they said, no, we don't believe that either. Well, what do you believe? Free will. Well, where's free will in the Bible? You show me the verses. And they show me a bunch of verses on responsibility. I said, well, nobody's teaching against our moral responsibility to obey God and believe God. But you haven't shown me a verse on free will. Free will, I'm still waiting. Well, I finally did a search of all of the, the words free in, in the entire Greek New Testament where the word free is used as an adjective, a verb, a noun, an adverb, where I don't think it shows up. And I found everyone, printed them all out, and I looked for every time the word free is found to find one case where it modifies will, either bulamai or thelema, the two words for will. Zero. Zero. I've actually sent these to people. Well, I don't care. I believe in free will. Fine, believe what you want, but don't say you got it from the Bible. But then it's not fair. Well, is God worried about whether people think he's fair? Is it fair that he chose Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and didn't go find somebody else? See, they're assuming that everybody who's not Abram wishes it was them, which is a false assumption. Why? Because this was a clannish world back at the time of Abram. Nobody wanted to leave their land or their people and go somewhere that afterwards somebody will show. Who would want to do that? It's a miracle that Abraham or Abram believed God, and it says it's the color to him for righteousness. He believed God and he he did what God Yahweh said. So when believers argue against what the Bible says, that God chose anybody, 
They're assuming that everybody who's not a Christian wishes they were one. They're just that's a false assumption. And that idea that you don't can't get, you can read the Bible. I've been reading my whole life. I haven't noticed that. When Saul of Tarsus wanted to destroy the church, was he thinking, Boy, I wish I was like Stephen, who was just martyred for believing. No. Was he thinking, I wish I was like those churches, looked like those are happy people. No, he wanted them dead. Dear ones, people who don't know Christ aren't sitting around lamenting that they're not Christians. I know I wasn't. So this is a false assumption. So they're saying there has to be free will or it's not fair. But they're assuming that anybody actually wants to be a Christian until after they're convicted by the Holy Spirit. And so now after they're convicted and converted and filled with the Spirit, they're thinking, well, everybody else has to have a free will choice to be like me. And I say, well, they do. And they're all choosing no. Just like Saul did. But God is rich in his mercy. And God will save people. Unexpected people, rejected people, noble people, rich people, poor people, any kind of people. And when he does, he adds them to the church, the part of his lot. But he does so through means. So we preach repentance. And when people repent, they turn to God from serving idols. And that's true, too. we got to say both things. They were assigned by God. And then later, when Paul writes to them, he said, you turned from idols to serve the living God. That's true, too. That's not a logical contradiction. Because that's what they did do. The priority is the work of God by the Spirit. But it's still right and good and praiseworthy to turn from idols to God. We turn from idols to God, but he gets all the glory. Because left of myself, I would have preferred the idol. Why? Because the idols don't have any rules. And the other thing about idols is, if, they, if you don't like what they're doing, you can melt them down and sell the gold and go get a different one. But if you don't like how God's doing things, you're going to have to face God. And that may be a problem. Brother Brian. Uh, the other false assumption would be uh, people that are still uh, uh, believing in the uh, idols that are still in the realm of darkness. So they believe they're saved, but they're not. Yeah, they believe. Uh, I'll tell you what I found from, I still do apologetics, and I uh, talk to a lot of people. The prevailing worldview in America right now is really an Eastern religion worldview. Sort of this uh, Hegelian. I know uh, Eric's going to preach about this this morning. But this Hegelian Marxist idea that everything's evolving into some sort of paradise on earth through the processes of history. This was the emergent. I wrote a book about this, about the emergent church, which they don't call themselves that now. They're just the liberal church, 
which is what they were all along. But anyhow, the idea is that everything's evolving toward heaven on earth, and it's going to happen, but there are setbacks because the people don't get with the plan. So the resistors who are saying, no, you're not evolving toward heaven on earth. Everything isn't becoming one. You're actually in rebellion against God. And history is going somewhere, but it's heading toward judgment. Not heaven. It's not like you think. Then I'm the resistor that's keeping heaven from coming to earth. And everybody else that thinks the same way. So it's those conservative Christians that are the problem. They won't get with the program. But they think eventually everybody will get on board and it will all evolve into some higher state of consciousness. You realize your own deity, your own godhood. The lie of Satan will be transformed into the truth. And when Satan told Eve, you shall be like God, well, finally it's going to happen. It's all going to be good. And uh, John Lennon's anthem, Imagine, Imagine there's no heaven and hell will become clear to everyone and we'll no longer have to worry about turning from idols to serve the living God. Yikes. Saints, that's the world we live in. So we need to be prepared to give evidence and to stand up for the truth. I don't need to be popular. I just need to be telling the truth. And it could be, as Jesus said, your own family members will be the ones who turn against you. That does happen. But we still have to stand up for the truth. So he said to them, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, nine, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's true. And that they were assigned by lot to God is also true. What kind of idols did they turn from? I happened to prepare print out in the last hundred years there's been so much material gathered by archaeologists that are confirming things that we know from the Bible to be true. Okay? And there were many different kind of gods and goddesses in their polytheistic world. So Dr. Schnabel has a whole section. I printed it here so I can share it with you. What was it like in Thessalonica and Asia Minor? We're going to include Ephesus and Colossae, the Galatian area, they had all these gods. Here's what it says for, for this material I have. The citizens of Thessalonica worshipped the customary pantheon of Greek, Roman, Egyptian, and traditional gods. The attested cults honoring Aphrodite, Athene, Apollo, Dionysus, Dioscuri, Heracles, Kaberos, Nemesis, that's an interesting one, Nemesis, Theos, Hypsistos, Theos is God, Hypsistos, Zeus, the Egyptian gods, Serapis, Osiris, Anubis, and Harpocrates, as well as Roman benefactors and emperors. They had an emperor cult. 
The available evidence concerning the cult's president in Thessalonica, a relatively young city without long traditions, suggests that religious affiliation established the identity of smaller groups rather than of larger segments of the population. The Dionysus cult of the city was unstable in the sense that that the associations whose members were worshipers of Dionysus were repeatedly reorganized. And I won't go any further, but he has, there's a lot of material about how they had various deities, little groups serving this one, little groups serving that one. You get to choose your deity, and the various religions had processes that they had to go through depending on what they thought their deity wanted of them. Now, this was polytheism. We live in a similar culture today. Multiple pagan deities and people have an eclectic process of choosing what they're going to do, how they're going to be religious, and who they're going to serve, and so forth. And in this sense, we must proclaim the truth of the gospel. People are not going to turn from idols to serve the true and living God if we never preach who the true and living God is. We must do so. We must also rebuke the the fallacy of idolatry. None of these many deities that can be out there created the universe out of nothing. None of them had the moral attributes of holiness, righteousness, truth, and so on that are true of the true triune God of the Bible. None of them are holy, righteous. None of them are omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. And none of them actually can save anybody from anything. They just give the religious veneer over whatever it is people do. They like to be religious. And that's what it's like. And we're calling people to turn from vain idols, vain meanings, uh, uh, to no point. You go through all of the effort, in the end, there's nothing there. It was all a big waste of time. Work, 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 and in the end, it's all a big lie. Yes, brother. It's interesting that these cultures that looked at these false idols, that if they were to look at the Old Testament and believe it, they would see, like when the Ark of the Covenant covenant was stolen, they put it in front of they the... They want to get rid of it. Yeah, they put it in front of the, the uh, idol, what was it, Dagon or something like that, and he falls over, and then yeah. they put it back up, right. and then his head's cut off, and the arms are cut off. So They finally wanted to get rid the, of the, yeah. the, the Ark. Get it out of here. <laughs> We don't want the true and living God representation in our country. And well, just look at uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal wanted to be Baal to be the real God. And they went into this riotous, loud process of trying to call on their God. And they cut themselves and they yelled and they screamed. And, and Elijah's mocking them. Isn't that a cool story? Try it. Maybe he can't hear. Shout louder. No bail. He wouldn't do a thing. Finally, the true God answered the promise he had given to 
Elijah. If you get a chance, I don't know if you've heard this, but uh, a young lady that we know was saved out of Kundalini Yoga came to Christ. And we did a, a series of interviews with her, her Critical Issues podcast and also, I think, on YouTube. And she highlights all she did for years, years and years and years, learning Kundalini, Kundalini Yoga. And they kept telling her, do the work, do the work, do the work, put in the time, do the work. And there was a serpent involved in this process of ultimately finding whatever it is, your, your, your true self, your higher self, and being released from all of the stuff that you're trying to get released from. And in God's mercy, when she got, after years of doing this, and you can hear this on our show when we interviewed her over like 12, 12 different sessions, in the end, God pulled back the curtain and she saw the demons that were behind it that were trying to destroy her. And she got out. And she, because she had been raised in a Christian home and she knew who the true God was. And she repented, running from God, came back to him. See, these spirits, these gods, they give a false sense of peace, but they're trying to destroy people. Don't serve them. So there were many cults, and they turned from them to serve the true and living God. So let's go, at least get one slide, more slide started here. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. It literally says, bad characters from the rabble in the Agora. The Agora was the marketplace. So people would, bad characters would hang out looking to see what opportunities excuse me, what opportunities would arise. And it's kind of an exciting thing when they get to start a mob. Did you ever think you'd see that in America? Kind of started happening. People hanging out. Oh, let's go knock in the, just take over some buildings, just have a mob. God help us. We need to pray for our country and not be a country of mobs, but uh, the rule of law. But that's the way it is. But it's kind of how it was. Snabel says number one, they organized pros. Uh, that's the word proslabano, to, to carry from or to, to bring from bad characters from the rabble in the Agora, which would be the central square of the city. Then they formed a mob. There's a word for that. Then they used these ruffians who were loitering in the Agora to gather a crowd. Then they started a riot. Then they threw the city into disorder, causing disturbances among the citizens. 
So here's an interesting uh, irony. And I'll, I'll quote Dr. Peterson on the ironic nature of this. Peterson, quote, It is ironic that the Jewish leaders formed a mob and started a riot in the city, but it accused the missionaries of being troublemakers. That's our next verse. See that? These people have stirred up trouble. So they start the riot, and they say, these people stood over here, these preachers, they, they stirred up trouble. See how they're shifting? It's very similar. We see these things today. Oh, yeah, we just looted your store, but it's your fault because you were there. It is ironic that the Jewish leaders found a mob and started a riot in the city, but then accused the missionaries of being troublemakers. They were trying to create the impression that Paul and Silas were responsible for this social disorder. Jason is introduced into the narrative as a supporter of the missionaries in whose house Paul and Silas might be found. This could be the same Jason, says Peterson, mentioned in Romans 16 and verse 21, as a fellow Jew and a co-worker with Paul. Perhaps Jason was converted because he first opened his home to these traveling preachers and then came to accept the gospel they proclaimed. Presumably, the embryonic church in Thessalonica was meeting in his home and people were being drawn from the synagogue to gather with other believers there. Hence the jealousy of those who remained in the synagogue. Unquote. So we know here that jealousy caused this. Just like it caused Paul to go on a tirade against the church at the time when Stephen was stoned earlier in Acts. So they were hanging out in the Agora and then found a good reason to have a little excitement, a riot. This is our chance. Now we can do something. Life is too boring otherwise. And when the mobs happened, then the livelihood of the people who were trying to be good citizens and do what they should gets destroyed. Because somebody decided they needed to have a riot. Now, what do we learn about this? We learn, for one thing, that we need to be ones who continue to preach the gospel. That's what Paul did. We learn that when God saves people out of whatever, whether it's a cult, just being agnostic, whether they're Jew or Greek, whatever their nationality, whatever their background, whatever their gender, whatever their race, none of that matters. When God saves people, they become part of the church of the living God. They're assigned as part of God's lot. That's what happens. And when that happens, it creates conflict and jealousy with whoever we used to associate with. And sometimes they get very, sometimes they just think we lost our mind. Uh, or sometimes they just say, oh, hey, did you hear Dewey got religion? That happened when I was converted. 
or sometimes they become hostile. I have literally known people who were told they're never again welcome in their own families when they came to Christ. We went to Bible college with a lady whose only family was the church because she was saved out of a family of occultists who openly served Satan, who were proud of it. When she came to Christ, they said, you're not our daughter. You have no place in this family. You're not part of anything. Don't call us. Don't visit us. Don't contact us. Leave. And so she ended up over at where I went to Bible College in North Central and worked there. And that was her, the family of God she was a part of. It's not always that extreme, but it does happen. The world thinks there's something wrong with us. Is that not true? Um, something's seriously wrong. We're not getting with the program. But it's because we have to serve God and not man. And we've been assigned by God as part of his lot. And the brothers and sisters we have in Christ are our brothers and sisters, not by natural generation, but by supernatural regeneration. And we love one another, and we pray for one another, and if necessary, we take action to help serve one another as people have times of need. That's the Christian church. It's not an institution, I believe, but an organism connected to the head, Jesus Christ, and connected to one another by our common bond with the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We have difficulties, we have problems, but we have one another. The church of the living God. Paul said, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Those are the three categories he understood. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, that you have seen fit by your grace to turn us, to help us turn from idols to serve you. Thank you that we can be part of your church and that you've given us a family and that we can care for each other and pray for each other. We pray for those in our midst who are sick or have sick loved ones who are suffering. Pray, Lord, that you would cover them, touch them, meet their needs, and bring strength and hope in trying times. Thank you for what we can learn and pray for Eric as he preaches your word to us that we'd have hearts to hear and listen to what we're told from your word. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.